Welcome to Northview Community Church's podcast. Today we'll be continuing our series on the Gospel of Luke. As 2020 is coming to an end, we are looking forward to our ministry starting back up again. Visit our website for more info, and while you're there, sign up for our newsletter to never miss out on what's going on at Northview. For any year-end donations, our Downs Road office will be open December 28th to December 31st. For holiday office hours, check out northview.org. For more information and to learn more about all of our ministries here at Northview, please visit northview.org or follow us on social media. Happy New Year. 2020 is behind us. Thank the Lord. May it never return, ever. We're looking forward to all sorts of cool things in 2021, both in our community and also as a church and a really great to have you join us at the beginning of this new year. Look, normally the first weekend of the new year, we have a really cool weekend where we give a number of our, uh, our MERS students, our pastoral interns, an opportunity to preach. I just want to give a little bit of context for why we do that and uh, who, the, who these folks are. Um, we have three levels of leadership development, uh, our training of pastors in our church. We have a ministry apprenticeship, and then we have a a pastoral intern or an immersed program, and then finally we have a church planting residency that we that we do. Uh, this is that middle group of people who are doing their their theological degrees right now, Master of Divinity degree, and uh, they're doing it within the context of this church. And they get a couple of opportunities a year that we call the, the immersed preaching weekends, and this is this is one of them. Normally, we have every venue that we've got packed with different people who are preaching in each one, but this year, because of course we're still uh, only allowed to have the online stuff. We've got Levi Friesen, who we're really excited to have you uh, here. He is a really gifted young guy, and we're hoping that this will not just be the only time you hear from him, but in years to come, you will see his development along with the others. So thanks for being here. Levi, over to you. Hi, my name is Levi Friesen. Uh, I may be a new face to a lot of you here on Northview TV. Uh, I am on staff at Northview as a pastoral intern, which means I'm part of our Immerse program here of one of our streams of leadership development. I'm really excited to have this opportunity to uh, bring to you God's Word. Uh, so our passage is going to be Luke 2, 41 to 52. So you can turn there with me now. Sometimes when we see a child doing something when they're younger, uh, it ends up being a really significant part of their life as they grow older. Uh, in my life, if you had watched me the first times that I ever played soccer, uh, you would have seen something that would become a significant part of my life later on. In fact, in those early uh, games and practices, you would have seen glimpses of the future soccer player I was going to become, uh, specifically an average soccer player on a, an okay team in a small regional league. You could have seen glimpses of that when I first began to play. Uh, on a more serious note, there are instances where parents who have a daughter who grows up to become a doctor can point back to times in her childhood where she would bandage stuffed animals, uh, bandage her cooperative siblings, or maybe a really uh, peaceful pet taking their vitals, using a stethoscope, different things like that, uh, that gave them a glimpse into her future in the medical profession. Oftentimes, these glimpses are things that we are unaware of in the present, and so we're forced to speculate or guess about what is actually a glimpse into the child's future and what is just a thing that happened to take place. In our passage today, though, we aren't left to speculate about the glimpse that we get. 
Luke is intentionally using this short story near the beginning of his gospel to give us a glimpse into who Jesus Christ already was, even at the age of 12. And the glimpse that we get is uh, about who Jesus would go on to demonstrate that he really was, the Son of God, who is the Savior of the world. So what Luke intends for us to catch is exactly that. And we're going to look at this story through two headings or two different sections. First, we're going to look at the way that we are actually catching a glimpse in this story. Then we're going to look at the causes of confusion that come up later on. So I'm going to read our text. I'm going to remind us of where it fits in Luke's bigger story. And then we'll get into our first point. So we're going to start in Luke 2.41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So before we get too far into unpacking our passage and applying it to our lives, we should remember how Luke has shown us who Jesus is and will become in the first couple of sections of his book. Specifically, we're going to look at a few, uh, three events that happened prior to this story. Uh, The first is that Jesus had all kinds of prophecies given about him before his birth. Mary received these prophecies from Gabriel, a messenger angel from God, talking about how he would become this great figure who would carry along Israel's history. These prophecies are starting to be fulfilled when we get to the story of Jesus' birth. And we see uh, these prophecies confirmed when Jesus is presented at the temple as an infant. But we don't have anything between those early stories and our passage. So there's 12 years of silence that come before our passage. But when we get to our passage, I'm going to summarize it for us. Jesus' family is going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. It was very normal at that time for Jews to travel in large groups as they went to Jerusalem, often many families traveling together. So it would have been normal both on the way there and on the way back for young people like Jesus' age to all hang out together on these trips with minimal adult oversight. As it says in our story, Mary and Joseph didn't realize right away that Jesus wasn't with them. But once they do, they turn back and journey for another day back to Jerusalem and spend the next day searching for him. Uh, When we think about them searching, we shouldn't think about trying to find an individual child in a city like Vancouver. Uh, Jerusalem was much smaller than that. 
So it's not outrageous to imagine they would have found him relatively quickly. Think of trying to find someone in a place like Fort Langley more so than Vancouver. When they find him, they find him sitting with the religious teachers in the temple, engaging with them and asking and answering questions. This was typical for a Jewish student in that day. There was this kind of dialogue of answers and asking questions that fueled learning. That was a very normal mode. What was abnormal in our story is that Jesus was already participating in this at the age of 12. In Jewish life, Jewish boys didn't become adults until they were 13. And at 13, they were expected to contribute and engage in a meaningful way in the religious life of the community. And it would be years of learning after that before they could be looked at as a source of wisdom or anything like that. So it was remarkable that Jesus was engaging, it seems like, on par with these wise religious teachers. So this is where we begin our first point. At this story, we're catching a glimpse of who Jesus already was. Our story records the first word that Luke reports Jesus saying in his gospel. Obviously, Jesus spoke before this, but these are the first words that Luke records, and so we should ask why and assume that they're somewhat important if Luke decided to start with these. So we're gonna, I'm going to read again the dialogue between Luke, that Luke records between Mary and Jesus. Mary asked him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Jesus replies, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? So I don't know if you caught that, but what Luke is contrasting here is Mary saying, Your father and I, meaning Joseph, were looking for you. And Jesus replies with, Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And he's referring to God as my father in this situation. And this is a pretty punchy statement that's kind of lost on us because in the first century, for Jewish people in particular, their primary identity was wrapped up in being part of their own family, especially for a firstborn son. Firstborn sons were the ones who would carry on a family line, who would take over a family business, who would care for aging parents. So it was really important for Jewish parents to have a firstborn son uh, and that that firstborn son be committed to the family. we don't have our primary identity wrapped up in family relationships in the same way anymore. Uh, Often we wrap up our primary identity in the work that we do or the field that we study in, our political affiliations, the hobbies that we do. But we're still surprised and we surprise other people when our primary identity isn't what they expect it to be. So for example, you might have coworkers who don't really think of you as a Christian primarily, but just as one of the fellow workers. And so when you do things that are uniquely Christian, it's going to surprise them if you're not going to participate in office gossip or you're going to be kind and gentle to someone who's rude with you or you're going to be generous to someone you don't really know. Those are all things that come out of your primary identity but aren't what they expected. That's what's happening with Jesus' response to his parents here. He is clarifying that his primary identity isn't what they thought it was. So for us, it's not surprising to hear Jesus say this kind of thing, because we've only been in Luke's gospel for just over a chapter and a half. And so these other things that Jesus is supposed to be are fresh in our minds. But we have to remember that there's a silent 12-year gap for Mary and Joseph between learning about the great things that Jesus would do and our passage today. 
So as Jesus drives this divide between his primary identity and what Mary and Joseph expect his primary identity to be, it doesn't mean that he's going totally rogue. We see that he still acts like their son. He goes home and is obedient to them. But this is the first time Jesus speaks, and it's the last time that Joseph is mentioned. So Luke is using this passage as a turning point in Jesus' own story to clarify that from this point on, we should have no doubt in our mind that Jesus' primary identity is that he is the Son of God. So not only is Luke using this little dialogue to separate Jesus' identity from Mary and Joseph's expectation of him, Luke is also using it to show that there's something unique about Jesus' relationship with God. For Jesus to say that God is my Father in particular is another punchy statement. It not only sets him apart from his family, but it also sets him apart from the rest of the Jewish people. Uh, Israel in the Old Testament and in through the New Testament beginning always would have referred to God as our Father. Uh, Israel belonged to God on the basis of a promise he made to Abraham, who was the forefather of a family tree that grew into being a huge nation. So Jewish people never would have thought of their personal relationship with God. They would have thought about how they as a community related to the Father. So for Jesus to say, I, is in, I am in my Father's house, is to be making a claim that's more than just saying, hi, hey, I'm part of the Jewish community. It's to say, I have a unique relationship with God. He is my Father. Uh, we understand this distinction between my versus our language when it happens in our world as well. Uh, when I was learning to drive, I used my parents' 2001 Honda Odyssey to learn to drive. And there are times when I would be, when I had my N, going to pick up a friend, and I'd say, hey, I'm, I'll pick you up in my vehicle today. And when I would say that, it's not that there was anything wrong with what I was saying, but I would intentionally say mine to make some kind of unique ownership claim over the vehicle in this time. I was saying that there's something different about my relationship to this vehicle than anyone else's. This is the sort of exclusive statement that Jesus was making here. He had a unique relationship with God. He is the Son of God who is also fully human, but has that unique relationship that couldn't be said of any other Jewish person. This raises a question for us. Who do you think Jesus is? How you answer the question, who is Jesus, will shape how you answer the question, what did Jesus come to do? Mary and Joseph, uh, if Jesus was primarily their son, what we could expect him to do would be to enact the family's plans for his life. Get married, have kids, carry on the business, take care of his parents. But if Jesus is someone else, we need to reconsider what we expect him to do. So, for example, if you think of Jesus as primarily a political figure, we're going to assume that when he comes to earth, his mission is going to be about tearing down systems and structures. And we're going to think when it comes to our personal sin, the areas of our life where we live in rebellion against God, that he has bigger fish to fry and doesn't really care about those, the minutia of our disobedience to God. Another example is if you think about Jesus as not really being God, but just being a, a human who had a special relationship with God, we're going to see his mission as 
uh, being one where he's just here to set an example, to be a role model that we can strive to be like. But if we believe, like Luke is giving us a glimpse of, that Jesus is the Son of God, what we should expect him to do on earth is to do the will of the Father. And so Luke then turns and uses uh, a couple of foreshadowing elements in his story to point us to exactly what that will of God is going to be and how we can already see it in our passage. Uh, Luke uses a kind of foreshadowing where you bring up a detail early in the story and um, explain it a little bit and unpack it, but that detail then fades into the background until it pops up again later on. Uh, You can think about like the start of a James Bond movie. Uh, Frequently, the movies would begin early on with James Bond getting introduced to this cool gadget by Q, the gadget guy, explaining how this, for example, an exploding ballpoint pen works. And then we don't talk about the exploding ballpoint pen. It's not a significant feature of the story until later on, James Bond is taken captive by Boris and he needs to get out in some remarkable way and Boris idly picks up this pen and starts clicking it nervously and accidentally detonates the grenade inside. And that gives James Bond the opportunity he needs to escape and run away and we remember the start of the story and be like, hey, that's the pen that James got introduced to early on. That's kind of what Luke is doing here. He's giving us a detail that we should remember as the story progresses because it'll be really important later on. Now, we need to know why Luke is writing to know what to do with the details he brings up. Uh, If Luke were writing a murder mystery, this isn't the approach we would take. We would have to sift through these details to figure out which ones are red herrings and which ones are helpful clues that we need to solve the mystery. Luke isn't writing a murder mystery. In fact, he's kind of writing for the opposite point. He gives us his purpose in Luke chapter 1. And there were sermons preached on this a few weeks ago, but I'll read verses 3 and 4 for us to remind ourselves. Luke writes, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So if Luke's purpose is to give us certainty in what we've learned about Jesus and the gospel, then when he brings up a detail, we should pay attention and investigate why he included this thing where he did. And so there are two such details in our story, the Passover festival and Jesus being in the temple. So we'll look at the Passover festival first. Uh, This festival was the reason Jesus and his family were in Jerusalem in the first place. Uh, The Passover festival was the central celebration of Jewish religious life because it commemorated their most significant deliverance in their history as a people. Uh, The Passover festival celebrated Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Before they were a nation, they were a family. And this family, to survive a famine, had to travel down to Egypt. And through a series of providences of God, they were provided for in Egypt. There was food there and they were safe. And as they remained in Egypt, they grew and multiplied and had kids and became a bigger nation. And it was a nation that grew, in fact, to the point of being a threat to Egypt. So Egypt enslaved them for 400 years. During that 400 years of increasingly harsh treatment, uh, Israel cried out to God to be delivered. And that's exactly what God did. And the way he delivered them was through a series of plagues. There were 10 of them. The first nine were kind of escalating in nature. There was the turning the river to blood. There were frogs and gnats, the death of livestock. Uh, 
but the tenth plague was the climax of this duel between God and Egypt. And it was to be the death of the firstborn all across the land. Children, animals, everyone. The only way that the Jewish people were spared from this plague themselves was if they sacrificed a spotless lamb as a family and used the blood of that lamb to cover their door frames, which would be a mark to the angel of death who was to execute this final plague, that a death had occurred in this house already and it was a death that would cover them. This was the plague that broke the Pharaoh's will and became the Jewish people's primary remembrance of what God had done to save them. Jewish families from all over would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. It was a week long. There was six days of preparation. And on the seventh day, there was the sacrifice of the lamb. This was the climax of the festival. The whole event was oriented around this lamb and the sacrifice. So how does this play into what Luke is doing in our passage? Well, Jesus' family had just commemorated this festival, this celebration, They had just sacrificed the Passover lamb. And as they leave the city and leave Jesus behind, he goes back to the temple. And in fact, when Mary and Joseph get there, what does he say to them? I had to be in my father's house. At the age of 12, Jesus feels this compulsion around the time of Passover to be in the temple, the very place where Jesus' family would have just sacrificed the Passover lamb. What Luke is doing with this detail is bringing up the fact early in the story that Jesus was the greater Passover lamb. His death wouldn't just free us from an enemy like Egypt or Rome, who were the greatest empires of their day, respectively. It was to deliver us from a greater enemy, and that enemy is our sin, our rebellion against God. As the lamb of the greater Passover, Jesus died so that all who belong to him would be saved from God's judgment that we deserve because of our sin and rebellion. And so Luke is including this Passover festival detail in our story to point us to the future, showing us that how at the age of 12, Jesus was already aware that he would be the Passover lamb. He had to be in the temple at Passover. The second foreshadowing element that Luke uses is the use of the temple itself. Given that the temple was the center of Jewish religious life, it's a little bit surprising that Jesus, this Jewish Messiah, would go so long in Luke's gospel after our story without returning to the temple. The next time he is in the temple, what we see uh, is that the reactions that he garners are very different than the ones in our passage. In our passage, he amazed the teachers with his surprising wisdom and insight. In Luke 19, he clears the temple. He overthrows that which the religious leaders had ordained and were doing there. And in doing so, he angers them. So much so that in Luke's language, in Luke 19, 47, he says that the religious leaders, quote, look for a way to destroy him. So Luke is using this first image of Jesus in the temple at 12 to bring our minds, when we get to Luke 19, back to it. To show us how Jesus was always on a collision course with these religious leaders, with the authorities of religious institutions of his day. He was always to be the Passover lamb who would die because of what he did in the temple. 
So the question rises again. Who do you think Jesus is? Uh, A common objection to the Christian faith today is this this accusation that Jesus is an unwitting victim in God's vicious plot, that he was unaware that there would be so much suffering in his life because of God's plan for salvation. But is this how Luke would have us understand Jesus in this story? The various elements Luke uses shows us that Jesus realized that to be about the Father's will would always mean he was to be the Passover lamb who was sacrificed, who gave up his life for us. Jesus was more than a victim. He was a willing and active participant in God's master plan of salvation. So we see that Jesus has, uh, Luke has Jesus' mission and identity clearly in focus in this passage. What he also notes, though, is that the people who witnessed this event didn't get it at the time. I'm going to read uh, Luke 2, 46 to 50 again as we look at the cause of confusion in our passage. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He said, Don't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Luke records how generally no one really understood what was going on here, but he zooms in particularly and focuses on how Mary and Joseph didn't understand what was going on. If there's anyone who at this point in the story should understand it, it would have been Mary especially. Uh, She had received the prophecy herself about what Jesus was to do. Uh, She was there, obviously, for his birth. She was there in the temple when his prophecies were confirmed. But she still didn't grasp it. What kept her from understanding who Jesus was and what he came to do. Uh, It's likely that her cultural narrative, the story that she believed about where uh, the Jewish people were headed and how they would get there, is what kept her from understanding Jesus in this moment. Uh, A cultural narrative is a big overarching story by which we understand the world around us. We understand ourselves by it, other people, our expectations for the future are shaped by it. Cultural narratives are all-encompassing, and they shape our understanding of the world as a whole. Uh, And these, as I said, shape our expectations of things. I'll give you two examples of how these cultural narratives shape our expectations. Uh, The first would be, I don't know if you were around back then, but the 1939 World Fair was held in New York City, uh, and the tagline for it was, The Dawn of a New Day. It took place after the end of World War I, and all of these nations from all over the world contributed these exhibits to the future technological advances that they were predicting. And the cultural narrative that shaped this whole celebration was that humans are good, humans want peace, and that when we work together, we can do anything. That shaped the exhibits. There's all kinds of flying cars and crazy buildings and stuff from that World Fair. Uh, the other cultural narrative example that would be illuminating is the, uh, the classic Pixar movie, WALL-E, from 2008. Uh, in this, the setting of the movie is basically a floating space cruise ship 
that humanity has to live on because we've made the earth uninhabitable by stripping it of all of its resources. Uh, the cultural narrative that shapes that movie is the idea that ultimately humans are after their own comfort, their own pleasure, and are willing to even destroy the planet they live on to chase those things down. Two very different cultural narratives that lead to two very different expectations of the future. For Mary and Joseph, their cultural narrative that shaped their expectations for the future was in the Old Testament. And in particular about Jesus was the story of David, who was a, the prototypical king of Israel. In Jesus' birth prophecy, there's actually a, a message that he will carry on this Davidic kingly line. What David did in the Old Testament was bring Israel to a place of peace and prosperity and prominence. And so it's natural that uh, assuming Jesus to be part of that line, Mary and Joseph would have believed that eventually Jesus would do that same thing. But how does a 12-year-old fit into that cultural narrative? Well, they would have expected until he's an adult and can actually effect change in that way that he would be a normal 12-year-old hanging out with the other kids in that caravan as they traveled home from the Passover festival. Because of their cultural narrative, they squeezed Jesus into this Davidic king box. And anything that pushed the boundaries of that box was impossible for them to understand at that point. They couldn't grasp the glimpse that they were getting. Uh, so Mary and Joseph, like all Jewish people, they had a cultural narrative that was about the direction of their Jewish community as a whole, because they weren't uh, people who thought of themselves as an individual first and then part of a community. They were part of a community, and that gave them meaning as individuals. For us, it's kind of the opposite. So the most impactful cultural narrative today is probably about ourselves as individuals. Uh, there are lots of them, but I think the most powerful one is the cultural narrative that tells us that people are good already. They don't need outside intervention. If anything, they need to be affirmed in their goodness. They need self-esteem more than anything else. How would that affect the way that we understand Jesus? There's a New Testament professor who teaches a class called Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, one early activity in the semester that he gets his students to do is to fill out a two-part personality type test. The first part of the test is hypothetical. They're filling out this character test as though they are filling it out on Jesus' behalf. Questions about, are you an extrovert? Are you an introvert? Do you like this better or this better? The second part is uh, the same questionnaire, but they fill it out for themselves. And what this professor finds over and over, semester after semester, is that the two sections of the test turn out basically the same. And what we learn from that is, if we think that we are basically good, and we believe that Jesus is good, then Jesus is basically just like us. If we're extroverted, we assume Jesus is extroverted, and we look at him preaching to crowds and attracting a following. If we're introverted, we assume Jesus is introverted and quiet, and we point to uh, him retreating to pray and spending time with a smaller group of closer friends. And we do this in other things too. We give uh, Jesus' validation to the other decisions we make. Uh, we assume Jesus would vote like we do, like he would spend money like we do, like he would parent like we do, like he would vacation like we do. When we think of ourselves as basically good, Jesus becomes a mirror reflection of who we are. 
And in that kind of a, of a dynamic, anything that isn't something that we would do, that Jesus does, becomes really difficult for us to understand and take to heart and believe and live our lives by. In particular, let's think about how Jesus calls people to repent, to turn from their sins, to surrender to him. How in the world is that going to fit with an understanding where we assume Jesus is just like we are? How could someone who's just like us tell us to change? What right would they have? The danger of our cultural narrative is that Jesus becomes a projection of who we already are. And this limits his work to a grand self-esteem project. Jesus is just here to make me feel better. And if Jesus isn't making me feel better, is he really worth my time? Is he really worth following after? So over and over in Luke's gospel, he notes how people misunderstand Jesus. How are we going to understand Jesus properly with such strong cultural narratives shaping the way we see everything? Uh, later in his gospel, in his last chapter, Luke helps us to understand how we can work against our cultural narrative. People get Jesus for the first time after he rises from the dead. And the way that they get it is that Jesus opens their hearts and minds to understand him properly from the scriptures. So what I'm going to do to close here is I'm going to open the scriptures for us to see how it says things that run contrary to our cultural narrative and shows us why Jesus is good news in the glimpse that we caught of him in our passage. So uh, Romans 3, 10 to 18 is a section where the Apostle Paul strings together a bunch of Old Testament quotations to show us how humans aren't basically good. We love living in our sin and we willingly dive headfirst into it in rebellion against God. So I'll read Romans 3, 10 to 18. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So not only is the Bible abundantly clear about how we are quick to do evil and are frequently doing evil, it is just as clear about how Jesus is good news for people like that. And in fact, the glimpse we catch of Jesus in our passage shows us exactly that. We see that Jesus is both our Passover lamb and the Son of God. And that has a few implications for how we should respond to such a picture of Jesus. If Jesus is truly our Passover lamb, we have nowhere else to turn to be made right with God. There is no other sacrifice that is sufficient. We can't go to any other solution outside of ourselves besides him. And there is no amount of our good works that can make us spotless in God's sight. If you've realized that he is the only solution, go to him. Put your faith in Jesus, receive his free gift of grace. He is the only way to salvation and restoration with God.
At the same time, if Jesus is not only our Passover lamb, but is also the son of God, like we saw in our passage, then he is not only the one who gave his life in our place, but is the one who has proved to be worthy of surrendering every part of our life to. His character is unmatched. His faithfulness is unrivaled. And so if you've already trusted Jesus for salvation and belong to him, what is keeping you from giving over every other area of your life to him? If he has proved faithful in this monumental matter of your salvation, how has he not proved faithful for you to turn over your finances to, your career direction to, your parenting decisions to, the way you interact with your friends? In every area of life, Jesus has already proved to be faithful because he is our Passover lamb. And now as the son of God, perfect in all he does, He is the one we should yield to. So respond with obedience to him. See what he calls you to do in scripture and follow faithfully. Uh, We've just come out of a very weird Christmas season. I'm assuming no less chaotic for most of us. And Christmas is a time where though it does in a way revolve around Jesus's birth, uh, it's a time where we get distracted by a lot of other things. So as we go into 2021 with whatever this year might bring, we would do well to treasure this glimpse of Jesus that we get in the story of him as a 12-year-old. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And that's good news for people like you and me. Let's pray together. Father, you have given us such a great glimpse into who Jesus is and what he came to do in this section of scripture that we've studied. Uh, Thank you for how you are at work in your world, how you don't leave us in our sin and rebellion, but have made a way to be restored to you in Christ. Pray that that truth would be impressed deeply on our hearts this year and that it would shape who we are as people as we live in line with that reality. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, My name is Kyle Meeker. I'm the pastor of theological and leadership development here at Northview Community Church. So Northview, we take leadership development as something that's really important, um, not just for ourselves, but for the good of the the broader church. We want to identify and train leaders so that they can then make more disciples. We want to see disciples growing so they can help other disciples grow. I'm Kendra Gerbrandt, and I'm a recent graduate of the Immerse program here at Northview. I had been working about six years in palliative care, just seeing a lot of people in distress at the end of their life, and not just physical distress, but this existential question. Is there God? Is he good? Um, And I knew the answers to that, but I just felt like, how amazing would it be to have more training to actually be able to articulate in conversation with people how to think through that better. My name is Freddie Roscoe, and I'm an Immerse student at Northview, uh, and I hope to graduate in June 2021, Lord willing. I want to serve the church, and I need experience. I need people over me training me. Uh, I need, like, I need a lot of oversight, but, but I don't want to read a thousand books and write a bunch of papers and sit in a classroom and talk about ministry. I want to do it. 
it's a unique program because it's rooted within the local church. So it's context-based, uh, where students develop mastery of ministry skills and demonstrate those, those skills uh, as, they're, as they're serving local church. Um, there's still classes that they take and papers that they write and lots of reading that they do, um, but the idea is that they do all those things while they're also serving the local church. And so you're learning on the job, and one of the great rewards is that as I'm knowing I need to prepare this and teach it for it to be useful there, it's actually useful for me too as I'm growing in leadership and knowledge. I've had opportunities to be guest speakers at different churches. They've had women's conferences and retreats and to be able to be invited as a guest um, to teach and equip their women while I'm still a student is just such, such a neat honor and to see that I'm still learning and I'm serving and growing people along the way has been really, really great. One of the strengths of Immerse is that there are three people who speak directly into my life and who have been able to give me kind of the best of themselves in kind of formally, informally, through one-on-one -on -one conversations, through just time together. I am being formed in my habits, in my character, not just in my theology, and it, both of those are so important. And here are three dudes who are seeing stuff in you and they're saying, we love this about you, but you need to grow. And we love this about you and like we're gonna push you I would totally recommend the Immerse program, um, depending on what your vision is for what you want to do. I did not have a vision to be in a traditional seminary as a career path, and if that is your vision, this probably wouldn't be a great fit. But for someone who's going to work in a local church and to be part of training and equipping people to know God through His Word um, in, in the ministry context that, that happens here in local churches, um, Immerse is going to equip you and prepare you for all of that. Um, it is an incredible program. I can take almost any position because I've worked at a, you know, a, a larger church in the Lower Mainland for four years and I've preached, I've taught, I've trained leaders, I've served in lots of locations. Like I'm, I'm being prepared for a life of ministry, which, which is what I wanted. And so Immerse has been amazing for me.